Fundraising everywhere. 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 Hello, hello. Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. Over the next few episodes, we're taking a look at some of our favourite grants and major donor on-demand sessions in celebration of our Grants and Major Donors Conference on the 14th of December. If you'd like to join us at the conference, you can use the promo code FEPODCAST to get 50% off. Yep, just pop in FEPODCAST at checkout to get 50% off Grants and Major Donor Conference in December via our website. Now, without further ado, on to today's episode. Welcome, everyone. I hope you've been introduced to me. My name is Amzal Page Hunter-Rapperson, and I am a finance uh, specialist in the charity sector. And we're going to be talking about uh, due diligence today. So, first off, um, what is due diligence? Uh, we're going to start by talking about what it exactly is and what you are being asked to do when people say, have you done your due diligence on this donor? So there are two main types of due diligence that we conduct, and these come to play across all of the types of organizations that we might work with, be it suppliers, clients, banks, and investment funds, and obviously the reason that you're here, donors. These two types are ethical due diligence and financial due diligence. There is certainly an overlap between the two, but often they're formed by different countries in an organization and often as well with different aims. For example, traditionally, the accounts department would check it whether a potential supplier was financially viable before putting a big order in, but might not be too interested in where that supplier got its raw materials or labor from. And we're starting to see this is beginning to get companies uh, into trouble, uh, this kind of separation of diligences. Uh, most notably, you'll, you'll see uh, coming up a lot in fashion uh, and kind of organisation backtrack and cancel contracts as suppliers and out be running sweatshops when they said that, you know, anyone thought that they were um, actually paying their workers properly and what So uh, we also see this overlap, or more correctly, this lack of overlap between the two types of due diligence um, throughout in charity investment policies. So up until very recently, charity trustees were actually legally obliged to ignore concerns about their investment vehicles if they gave the best return against an agreed risk policy. So you had charities being put in a position where they had to do financial due diligence. Yeah, is this investment bank about to fail? but were not allowed to act on, on any ethical due diligence data that they might have about, you know, about that particular bank. Um, this has been now challenged in the courts, and trustees do have some more leeway in following ethical um, investment rather than kind of maximum return investment. Uh, but it's still not always entirely cut and dry. So, so you still have these sort of sections of kind of, grey areas within that due diligence framework. 
So if you want to look uh, in specific at some examples of how this might relate to a donor, uh, a good example of a clear separation of that financial and ethical uh, diligence is uh, you've seen with, so we've got a hypothetical donor who is a building contractor. Um, and as we continue down this, we'll start to see the two become intertwined again, but, but, but kind of initially we might have two separate places that we're looking at it. So our hypothetical donor has a very violent corporate look, and it works all over the world. We've got a website with pictures of children smiling at nearly dug wells and teal cityscape skyline through yellow paint and shining steel. A bit of digging, however, and you see that they work quite extensively for the military. Um, not necessarily a bad thing. And then you see that they're setting up temporary accommodation and specialist facilities in undisclosed desert location. And that's it's that a little bit more interesting. And a little bit of further digging suggests that you can't be certain. It's highly likely that these are CIA rendition sites. And that's the ethical due diligence that you probably already have a decent handle on. And it then becomes a subjective question for your organization as to whether you want to work with them further. But what about the financial due diligence in this situation? What are we doing and what are we looking for? So in this example, uh, we probably pass them relatively easily. Um, you know, if I was just a finance person doing my finance due diligence on them and looking to their balance sheet, I'd see you know military contracts with probably pretty healthy balance sheet, probably probably pretty healthy long term income security. I financially would have nothing wrong with nothing um, against doing business with this new organisation. Um, you know, we generally as well expect a company in that sort of quite prominent position to be mostly clean on the sources of its income. You know, this is assuming that you consider military income clean. I personally have no overriding opinion here, but I have one charities that take the view that it's absolutely fine to work with the military and other charities that for them it's an absolute no-no. But the income itself is clean in that it follows a pattern and a pathway that is legitimate. So what would constitute dirty money then? What are we talking about? Because in innovating, that's probably the key financial due diligence that you're doing. You know, it's less of an issue for you as an organization, the charity, with who taking more and make you get from an individual or from a company, if that giver is about to go bankrupt, as long as you've got the money in your bank before they go bankrupt. You may ethically have issues with this, especially if there are other creditors um, and this charity or this organization is using this gift as a way of denying those creditors what's due to them. Uh, that does happen. But there are plenty of charities who will happily take that money and fight through the court. So we have seen that as a situation. And again, that, that, that's ethical because, you know, if we, whilst an organization that is about to go bankrupt, where a company's about to go bankrupt really ought to be thinking about them and keeping that, um, yeah, being open about that, they don't always necessarily do so. We are primarily talking about money laundering and receiving the proceeds of fraud or other crime. These are slightly different because if you're involved in money laundering, the aim is to move the money through your charity to pound from the up and out the other side. But if you're in receipt of the proceeds of fraud or crime without being used as a launderer, 
i.e. it is a genuine gift to you, then your charity could be liable to have that income retained to where it, you know, to, to a legitimate And alongside this, need to refuse a new goal. So if you're knowingly involved, it gives now further consequences, especially for your trustees. Um, because trustees have that legal responsibility for the charity's income and outright. So we might have wondering, um, by those studies that we think a lot of people have heard and not a lot of people know necessarily what it means. Um, primarily, it is a process by which money leads the criminal economy and enters the legitimate you know, as you can imagine, there's no point having money if you can't spend it. So if you've stolen some money or if you've got it through extortion or any of those sorts of things, probably in cash. And there's only so much you can buy with cash before people start getting suspicious. And especially if you want to use that money to buy yourself nice houses and big cars and fancy things and anything with these paper. And you have to find a way of making it so that when people look at that, you know, when the um, when a tax authority look at it, they say, that's fine, that comes through a legitimate meeting. I'm a legitimate So to launder money, um, you essentially need to make it look like it could have been earned in a normal way. And usually to do that, you need a business that has a high turnover and lower direct costs. So one of the classic examples is your hand car wash. So each car wash uh, might use maximum about 50 pence worth of raw materials, you know, cleaning fluids and wearing care on the brushes and stuff. You might charge a tenner for it. So if you wash an extra 10 cards per day, you move 100 pounds through the Because no one's counting me that amount of No one's counting me that amount of cards that are going through your forecast. So... Suddenly, you've got this cash that's going into the business and it's just going in there in, in a very sort of, you know, it, it's just being put into the till, literally put into the till. But it comes out as legitimate income. It gets taxed, it gets, um, you know, that PAYE on it. And what's, you know, the proceeds then get given to whoever is, you know, whoever's laundering that money. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can have really nice, high indirect costs. So you might have a, a consultant who no one knows exactly what the work they are doing is for this particular car wash. Um, but they're getting paid, you know, a curiously round figure every month that is curiously the extra number of um, uh, extra number of cars that are going through the port. You know, that sort of thing. You might have extra people on payroll who never actually turn up to work. And this is where a charity might come in. So we have an income model in charity that is economically completely divorced from our output, which is to say most businesses and indeed the entire accounting framework around which, you know, make all of these calculations are based on the idea that higher sales yield higher turnover in higher costs. So... You're driven by your sales. And the more you sell, the more you have to produce, and the more you have to produce, the more direct costs you have. In charities, um, we do more work. We don't necessarily get more money for it. It's the other way around. We have to 
get the money in first and then do the work. Which means that it can be ideal for money laundering because you can put money in and you have no need to justify that money. You know, there's no need to pretend that you are washing an extra couple of cars a day. You don't need to pretend that you are offering, um, you know, that a charity is offering you a service. You just have to find a way of getting the money, or most of it, back out at the upper end. And, and that, 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 I would say, is the key thing to be thinking about in terms of your due diligence. That, that's the key element of what money laundering is going to happen. So they will be looking for a way to get the money back out of the charity at the upper end. And usually, this is by specifying that the charity has to provide a graph to a specific individual or to another charity, or, you know, they're saying, we need you to, to do that. We're going to give you a load of money to do some building work. You have to use our builder, you know, or you have to use our consultant. So this is what we're looking for in terms of that due diligence. Does this funding come with a list of demands that don't seem on the level? Am I being offered it, but only on the condition that I'm working with the organization? Or do I pay it onwards? Would I act as a holding company? Um, these aren't always problems in themselves. It can be quite legitimate for one charity to manage money for another you know, as a caretaker or a fiscal sponsor. But this needs to be clear and on the level and not dictated by a funder in a coercive manner. And actually, the usually the case with trust fundraising wealth and the individual giving. So, you know, if an individual is asking you to do that sort of work, that's where you need to be looking into whether or not there's, there's something there. Um, so, money laundering is required because the source of the money is illegitimate but not all illegitimate money is being laundered. So sometimes criminals like to give money to charity because it makes them feel better about themselves. But you still shouldn't take it. That's my view. That's pretty much the um, mission and uh, HMRC views as well. So, you know, what are the te- practical steps there? Um, so the first is regarding anonymity. Donors who wish to stay anonymous Absolutely fine. Anonymous donors, not fine. So even if the rest of the world doesn't know who is giving you the money, you really need to know who it is. If you can't find out who they are, and it is a significant amount of money, we're not talking about someone putting a £100 in your collection back there because they're feeling fresh. You know, we're talking about the major donor, major um, donations that come in you know, it's £100,000 into your bank account and no one knows who's giving it. You should have a mechanism in place to be able to reject that. And this may seem like it's looking like, it, you know, looking at it caught in the mass. And you've all seen those kind of terrible feel of movies. An anonymous donor saves more from which turns them down. But, but unfortunately, it's the real world. Not only is it possible that that can come into fraud, but acceptance of that money can uh, open the way to future pressure and, um, you know, if the donor then decides to appeal them down, this decides to start putting in pressure onto your organization. You need to make sure that you are able to resist that. So that's the first step of due diligence. Find out who they are, and if you can't, then it's really paid the same. Once you know who they say they are, you know, be this an individual or an organization, you know, a, a, a corporate, 
you're looking to make sure that that is who they really are. You know, some people, you know, some organizations may say they're one thing, but they're actually not. So with businesses, you're going to be looking for their company's house records as well as asking for trade records. These don't only tell you if someone is good to work with, they let you know if they're actually doing what they came to be doing and um, shell or other non-trading. But also you're looking at social media presence, you're visiting their offers or their staff if you can. Shell companies exist and move on from one place to another in a manner that looks like real trading but isn't. Sometimes they have fake offices, reception staff who do nothing, someone on payroll who doesn't quite know what it is they do. It's all surface though. And when you try to see the evidence of the work, the buildings that they built or the products that they sold, you're instead highly emptiness or confused to a bit of More often they will just have a generic address and an automated mail forwarding service. You can't even find their accounts will be a year on year on year of dormant entity findings in the company's house, followed by, you know, one single year or, or a recent year of big round numbers of, of transaction, you know, sorts of things that, that just look like someone's made it up. If you have an individual donor who wants to give you a large amount of money, but they're insisting that it goes to a company, and that company doesn't appear to be engaged in real economic activity. And that is almost someone who is laundering money through a shelf. And sometimes people will want a gift to go through their company, and the company is real and active, and actually all they're doing is doing since profits moving or finding the most way to keep tax efficient giving. And that becomes your ethical side of things. Are your individual policies okay with that? And mostly we should be. Um, like tax efficient giving is a big part of corporate. So link to this then is to make sure that you're not being coerced into accepting that or using it to come back, which is to say, as we said, you're not being told to use the gift or the very specific thing that is not normally part of your email. Sometimes we can be a little bit too used to the concept of restricted funding in charities and the many charities will sort of chase around and do the work that funders want them to do rather than the work that follows their own strategy. And this can be a bad habit when, when it's innocuous, you know, when we're just doing what, what the trust fund, uh, the trusts are asking us to do, because it can lead to financial difficulties, it can lead to a lack of focus, but it is particularly dangerous when it comes to individual giving um, because of this kind of risk of, um, of opening yourself up to, um, to being used to conflict. And not all wandering is done via businesses. Sometimes we said it's genuine gift of the legitimate funds. As the next thing you should be doing is looking at whether you can verify the source of the income. And there are some fascinating issues here around race and class and wealth and when it comes to individual giving. I won't go into any of that other than to say, don't be a bigger when you start investigating where your money is but you do need to find a way to ensure that you know how someone has come by the money. This can have to so that ethical element. Plenty of organizations won't take money from so-called legitimate sources because it doesn't chime with them. You know, inherited wealth isn't necessarily key, although it has at least already been by the wider tax system. So you don't need to worry about that in terms of financial due diligence. But you might say that you don't want to take money that comes from, for example, slave ownership in the past, you know, that that could have 
that could have an ethical side to it that your charity or your organization wants to honor. And again, if it's coming from a company because the donor is a director or owner of that company, the way you can verify um, is by doing that trading activity network. You know, are they a real company? Are the pictures and testimonials on their website real or are they paid for or stolen? Then you stick to the right you to if it's coming from an individual, you guys probably already know that process of establishing that relationship considerably better than I do. So I'm not going to tell you how to do that, but you know, be prepared to dig deeper into what we're doing. Oh, I think I've got a little bit of time left. So I want to do a very final note on um, shares and on cryptocurrency donations. So ultimately, there's a lot to go into here, but these are things that you need to be very careful. Um, both of the love with certain groups of donors, both have the same problem of being speculative, which is to say that they have a value that can shift without warning. And as much as some people feel it's a nice way to give to charity, an element of which they have approved through speculation, there are as many who are using their charitable gifts to manipulate the market called price fluctuations that they then benefit from. So charities are generally advised against accepting large share. Or if they do, they're advised to sell them and to um, to realise them uh, in their book at a fixed price rather than holding them as I would suggest the same will be followed. With it can be tempting to see the rise in the markets and think it's better for the charity. So ride that cresting wave to 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 benefit from from you know from these um, speculation. But it's not our job to do so. And crypto specifically to, to mine finance and government's mind is particularly a problem for charities because the technology it's designed to hide problems. So it's just that, you know, one of the things we want to find out is where does the money come from? Cryptocurrency is specifically designed to hide from And for some, this is a democratization of money. It is it ensures that money has a value based on its utility, not on who's spending it, not on where it comes from. And there's some good arguments for that. But given the way that charity law and charity accounting practices are at the moment, I think that it is a better place to try and step back from, um, especially if you're talking very large sums of money. Um, it's just that little bit harder to do the due diligence you need to do. And that starts bringing it into that space where the risk, despite, you know, you might look at the amount and say, yeah, this is great, but the risk of what happens if that amount turns out to be coming from a place that shouldn't be or involved in something that you at the charity wouldn't want to be is too much for it. Okay, um, thank you for coming along. Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you found that helpful and useful. It's a huge area to delve into. Um, and I only have 20 minutes to do so. Um, but hopefully, giving you something to start thinking about where you start on that process of due diligence. It is an, it is, it can seem daunting, but it is just about let work. Thank you so much for listening to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not share it with a fundraising friend? And if you would like to give us a little like or subscribe, it really helps more fundraisers like you find us.
Thank you so much. See you next time.